Welcome to You Can't Get to Heaven in a Miniskirt. My name is Jessica. My name is Sarah. If you'd like to support the show, there's now two different ways you can do that. You could go to patreon.com slash heaven in a miniskirt, where you're going to find our bonus episodes. You can also get our bonus episodes through Apple podcasts by signing up for miniskirt plus it's the same content. So you don't have to do both. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find our awesome meme page at heaven in a miniskirt on Instagram. And we are also on TikTok at heaven in a miniskirt. We are on Twitter at miniskirtpod, and you can go to our website at heavenandaminiskirt.com. And today, we interviewed an amazing guest. We interviewed Kit Morgan, and Kit is a practicing licensed social worker and therapist in the state of New York, and they've been published in national and international journals. They've done research in racial disparities in addictions treatment and alternatives to abstinence-based only addictions treatment programs. And Kit is also the founder of The Liberated Porch, which is an online platform that includes a podcast and self-guided courses to support people with their mental health. And today we talked to Kit about their deconstruction journey, their journey navigating the LGBTQ community while deconstructing, different ways that you can insert boundaries in with your family and friends. What else did we talk about? So many things. And also how in Christian circles, when we share our testimonies where we are trauma dumping a lot of the times and therefore trauma bonded and how that can make it really hard once you've deconstructed navigating relationships and, you know, levels of closeness. Cause sometimes there's that all or nothing in church where you really know the deepest details of someone's life from like prayer meeting, or you don't know them at all. Oh man, that was so real. And it was very insightful for Jessica and I, we, I feel like I realized a lot of things that I hadn't really even thought about before. So thanks Kit. We're going to be deconstructing some more. Yeah. Thanks. I had a a real Oprah aha moment (laughs) during the podcast. So yeah, it was a really good one, but it was a great conversation. I think this will help people going into the holiday season, just learning a little bit about maybe something, some coping mechanisms for dealing with those conversations during the holidays. If you are going to be celebrating with people that maybe you don't agree on everything with, and this is our final episode of 2023. We're going to be taking a little break over Christmas, but if you are subscribed to our bonus episodes, you'll be getting a bonus episode and then we'll be back in January. And we have some very exciting things lined up. So we can't wait to enter into our third year of the podcast. Oh my God. Yeah. What? We will be entering our third year. That's crazy. Oh, well, thank you guys all for being here for this crazy ride. And it's been, it's been a real, it's been a real treat this year. And I'm really excited for what's lined up for 2024. Our interview with Kit was a great way to end off the year. And Mm -hmm. we'll put all of their social media and stuff in the show notes so that you're able to follow them as well and access some of the resources they shared. Yeah, they gave us a lot of resources. So this will hopefully help everyone get through this season, especially seasonal affective disorder, navigating the holidays. Staying a little more grounded, getting in contact with your you know, your body sensations and how you can be mindful of what your body's physically telling you in terms of trauma. Yes. So enjoy. We love you. Happy holidays. Happy new year. And we will be back before you know it. Peace. 
been like so stoked about this and it was so funny because one of my friends out here had sent me one of your posts and he was like oh my gosh they're so clever and they're so funny have you ever seen this and I said yeah and I'm gonna be on their podcast and I'm so stoked about really? it and so oh, it's so awesome yeah that is the best so you heard about us like you already knew about us because you were gonna come on the podcast plus you were following us and then you heard about us from someone else who found us that's hilarious yeah because how did we connect kit I think I've found a lot of deconstruction people. At one point, we just started talking. I jumped onto your live. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is Sarah jumped on a live with Kit and was uh, okay. Oh, my gosh. You, Sarah, just tell a story. It was so funny. Yeah, I jumped. I just was stoned and I was like, oh, Kit's live right now. Like we because we've been talking like a little bit over messenger and we're like, oh, like we really want to get Kit on the podcast. And then like I just jumped onto your live and then we started talking about love, love is blind, blind and like queer, how it's like how it's so straight and so heteronormative. And, and I <laughs> was on Instagram and I'm like, oh my God, what is Sarah doing? And I signed in. And at one point I was the only person watching and I was texting Sarah on the side being like, are you stoned? What are you? It was just like a weird third wheel on our live. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Lives are so wild. So I used to have a TikTok presence until I made the radical right, like super pissed off and where I'm like okay I guess that's like an honor then they would just like report me for things that were unfounded but anyhow I used to be on a lot of lives there would be like hundreds of people on the lives and so then I thought well maybe I could just do that with Instagram because Instagram for me my experience is it's been more LGBTQ friendly I know that's not always people's experiences but that's just how my experience has been and so then like I've like tried doing lives and like the most viewers I get it's like 10 and I'm like okay why am I still doing the lives but you might be shadow banned <laughs> yeah I probably am yeah <laughs> we got shadow banned for a while like initially. yeah I think somebody reported us initially and then it just happens sometimes you get reported and you're like wait why is nobody seeing our stuff this week like it's just it's so obvious that something happened and then it just goes back to normal that's happened a few times so I guess so we we got into talking but it might be good for us to do a quick intro oh yeah oh, <laughs> we're yeah. recording a podcast right now and there's people listening welcome thank you yes do you want to give our mini skirt listeners a quick intro of who you are and what you do and why you're here today well wow that's like a very broad existential <laughs> question we love those questions though <laughs> Well, I'm here because I was born and I guess just some strokes of luck happened and now I'm here. But my name is Kit Morgan. I'm a non-binary person. So my pronouns are they, them. I'm based in upstate New York. I am so far up there that I could basically throw a stone and it land in Canada. Woo! So yeah, hey. we yeah. love it. Kit loves Canada. They vacation here. Oh, do you really? Oh yeah. oh yeah. I'm obsessed about Canada. Like... I talk yeah. so much about Canada that I'm planning on going to Canada in like two weeks and I'm having like a group of friends follow me. They're like, you have to show us the Canadian ways. And I was like, I've got you. Oh my God. But, we um, have to meet up sometime. That's great. <laughs> we totally should. So yeah. And I'm a therapist and I do that all telehealth. I see clients all across New York state and I see adults only. And so I work with people with a range of conditions, but a lot of the work that I do is people that have different identity transition concerns. 
And so that could be like new to recovery from substance use, or maybe that means religious trauma or domestic violence and looking at life after that. So, and I work a lot with people in the LGBTQ community as well. So just a lot of different things, you know, and just meeting people where they're at. Awesome. And I think we had gotten to speaking a little bit about religious trauma and like deconstruction and how oftentimes like Kit and I have had a lot of conversations just on Instagram messenger back and forth and how Hmm. oftentimes it's really hard for people who are deconstructing and especially coming out after too, because you're losing your faith community, but oftentimes people are also losing their friends and family and like their entire support system. And that can be really, obviously really traumatic. Yeah. And, and, and trying to find and build trust with people again, and then figuring out how to share because growing up in evangelicalism, I, I think about testimony times where mm. that was just trauma dumping. And so after you trauma dump, then you're trauma bonded to people. So it's like, okay, and then you lose those trauma bonds after leaving. And then it's like, well, shit, now how do I connect with people? And I think that a lot of people that leave evangelicalism, then they try to connect with people by trauma dumping. And then they're like, oh, why am I not connecting with people? I 100% can agree with that. I think the bond that you have with someone when you trauma bond is so different. And so, I don't know. It's like disingenuous a bit. Yeah. In comparison to my friendships where I made them by not trauma bonding with somebody, it is a different feeling. Those, I find those friendships to be way more fleeting. Definitely. Just less healthy. Totally. Because it's like you're connecting with people while you're emotionally dysregulated. So it's like... So if you're dysregulated with that, then how's your interpersonal life going to be regulated? How's it going to be stable? It's hard to transition that. I've tried to do that even outside of Christianity when I've trauma bonded with people and it doesn't always translate over to like a stable relationship and you just have to end that. I think sometimes growing up in the church too, where sharing of the testimony, sharing your trauma dumping is it's encouraged and it's validated because you're like, oh, you have such an amazing testimony. Everyone needs to hear this. Or if you're struggling, you're expected to share with everyone so everyone can be praying for you. And then you're sharing everyone Mm -hmm. else's shit too. So I feel like things become so enmeshed and boundaries become really difficult for people. Like I struggle, I struggle to this day with boundaries just because I feel like when I was younger, there was no sort of distinction between me and the other people in my church. Like everything felt like it was also my problem because it involved their eternal souls. Yeah, absolutely. And I grew up in an urban area. I've lived in urban areas. Now I live in a place that's so rural that it's a population of 5,000. So with that of experiencing these differences, like urbanized living and then rural living, then there's also going to be a difference of boundaries there. There's going to be a difference of communication as well and figuring out how to navigate that as well. Like I wish that it could be as simple as being like, here's a blueprint and this is how you communicate, but it's not that simple. And you look at all these different cultural factors that affect the way that people communicate. And it's like, okay, so how do you look at honoring that while also figuring out what your boundaries are going to be? Like something that I talk to people about is if you are sharing something where you feel it in your body to a point where your body is tense, you feel physically sick, you feel in pain, then that's a sign that you're sharing too much and to dial it back. 
fuck. Not. <laughs> Jessica's not stoned, but <laughs> that was a stone fuck. fuck. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm that sober, is but... so good, though. Wow. I think uh, and could... Jessica, you should just share with Kate a little bit about what you've said in the past between the disconnect between your body and your brain because of religious trauma. I think that oftentimes in religious circles, because the body and the flesh is so negative that we are taught to ignore our bodily cues and our desires. So I think that we sometimes have that disconnect. Yeah, that's that that happens in cults too, right? So I'm as uh-huh. most of the listeners, the regular listeners will know, I, I love cults a lot. Well, no, I love, I don't love cults. <laughs> <laughs> She's drank the Kool-Aid, folks. <laughs> Let's back it up. I love to talk about cults. <laughs> I find them fascinating. And I think it's also just a bit of a trauma response <laughs> from my own issues being in uh, cult adjacent type of things. But I think what you're taught when you're in a cult is no matter what kind of cult it is, you aren't good enough and your emotions are not to be trusted and you're told to ignore the feelings within you and within your body. And so in Christianity specifically, like Sarah just said, you're told that your flesh is insert adjective here. Evil. Yeah. So your flesh is evil. So every desire that you have is evil. And whether you're supposed, so I was reading recently about like some advice for kids that are having sexual thoughts it's like just don't think about it that's the advice so it's just like just ignore bury and put a lid on everything and for me especially because I'm an extremely emotional and sensitive person that was awful for me and sent me into a state of deep depression that I didn't crawl out of until well after I left Christianity because I didn't even know for years for fucking years. Well, you're supposed to actually feel your feelings. Mm-hmm. I had a therapist be like, yeah, you're supposed to like feel your negative feelings and process them. And it like blew my mind. So <laughs> that is a really good example. Like I didn't want to feel any negative feelings because negativity was the devil or negativity was your flesh or whatever. And I think that is so damaging to people. And those are really difficult things to unpack. Yeah. And you take into consideration too, how many people who came from high control groups experience chronic illnesses and then in being told that's part of your flesh, that's part of something that is unrepentant. So then you get used to saying, I'm sorry for being in pain or for being sick and trying to do what they call quote unquote soul searching or self-reflection or let's just say what it is, reflection upon the belief systems that you were brought into of what they believe is wrong that you're doing. And so with part of this, like, I think that working on self-compassion is one of the best things that people can be doing after leaving these groups. And in my experience of socializing, it's the people that respect my boundaries, affirm my boundaries, where I'm like, yeah, like, you're the real one, right? But it's like, can be really hard to trust people after leaving these groups, because then you're trying to suss out, like, who are they? And then saying time will tell. This happens a lot with people after leaving these groups, because of thinking about how much time, how much effort, how much resources were put into these high control groups. If you were really deep into it, like I was really deep into it and it took me 
a while to get out. And so it's like, whenever you consider all that you've lost, of course, you're going to be going into situations with more precautions. But for people that didn't grow up in high control groups, they may not see those who came from religious trauma or cult trauma as being cautious because those of us may seem more open to sharing, but it's like to a point. Are you able to tell us a little bit about your story within religion, like whatever you're comfortable with sharing? Your deconstruction testimony. Yeah. What's your de- <laughs> <laughs> but with, with what you're comfortable with in terms of in terms Are of Are you ready to trauma dunk with us right now? Is what we're asking. I am so ready. It's a podcast, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it really hasn't been until this past year that I've started being more open about things because, you know, I've have been contemplating about how much or how little I want to be sharing. And then in just learning that so many people feel alone because they haven't heard people talk about things where I'm like, yep, I experienced that. Then I'm like, I think it would probably be beneficial to be more open about these experiences. And so I'm like, yeah, that's okay. I'm a person that likes to hear things from the horse's mouth type point of view. Uh, I grew up in a Baptist family getting bounced around between fundamentalist and Southern Baptist circles. And then when I turned 18, I was given no other choice but to attend a school that was approved by my parents. And my older sister decided not to do that. And she became homeless as a result of that. So, you know, whenever you are isolated within a high control group, then who are your social supports? You don't have any. They're all interconnected. So it's like, well, then you just go to a shelter or you live out of your car or whatever. Like, like this is something that unfortunately happens. So it happened to my sister. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to repeat that. So I ended up going to Liberty University. Ooh. And you know Liberty <laughs> University a little Ooh. bit? Yeah. Yep. Lynchburg, Virginia. I know. Even just the name, it's just like, <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Boy. Because oddly enough, that was the most progressive school out of the <laughs> options that I was given. I know it. I know. Uh. Either I could go and get an education so that then I could use that as the platform to be able to leave or I could go to a homeless shelter or I could live out my car. Like those were my options. And so whenever you're in survival mode, you're going to do whatever you think is best at the time. So that's what I decided to do whenever I was on campus. And I had already been diagnosed with some different chronic illnesses whenever I was a child. And whenever I got there, it flared them up big time to the point of debilitating, had a handicap sign for my car. And I was like, wow, something is off here. And I couldn't really put my finger on it. It was just like, there were just so many things where it didn't feel right in my body. And so I decided to go back home to the Midwest and finish up classes online and get done with my bachelor's as soon as possible. 
And I got done with it in two years because I was just like, get me out of Liberty University. And turns out things were getting flared up because my body was knowing that this was not a safe place. And so it was like, I was seeing these things and not really consciously processing yet, like the depths of the darkness and the insidiousness of Baptists. And, and then I, I ended up going to Indiana University for grad school, which is the school that I wanted to go to for my undergrad. And I had a great time when I sat in the the grad school interview, I was like, as you see here, I'm a good student, except whenever it comes to Bible classes. <laughs> I was like, uh, my low grades are, are all Bible classes because Liberty University asked me what my opinions were about different teachings. And I would say what my opinions were and they didn't like them. So they tried to fail me and they didn't because I would memorize chapters of the Bible just in order to pass the classes and experiencing that they're like, Hey, we like you. You're sticking to, to your values here. I was like, yeah. So I say that I left the Baptist church whenever I was 19. And, and after that, it was like, I was still living in the Bible Belt. I was still doing like camp ministries, but other than that, I wasn't involved in the Baptist church. I ended up going to a progressive Catholic church that I honestly still really like to, to this day. I don't live out there anymore, so I don't go there, but they were very LGBTQ affirming. They talked about social justice. They talked about really confronting systems of oppression. They wrote their own worship songs so that it wasn't written by people that harass women that harass LGBTQ folks. They were really doing things where I'm like, okay, yeah, like, like I support this. So like, so I say I'm not anti-religion, I'm anti-oppression. There are those groups that, especially like progressive Christians that are like the United Church of Canada is LGBT affirming. And they were like in the nineties at the forefront of trying to make it so that queer pastors could be ordained and pushing for marriage equality in Canada. And Unfortunately, that's the minority of Christian denominations, those progressive ones that I think are doing things the way that Jesus would want. Yeah, absolutely. I was living in Rochester when the news became public that Daniel Prude, who was in mental health crisis, was murdered by the police and that his murder was covered up by the local hospital, by local legislators. And the city erupted in protests and Donald Trump was president at that time and ended up sending the national guard. There were tanks, there were tear gas, rubber bullets, and all this was happening right in my neighborhood. And there was a local church where it was led by a black female pastor. Again, it was a progressive Catholic church. And she and her deacons, her elders, ended up locking arms, like what you would see in um, pictures from the 60s of the civil rights movement in the U.S. And they locked arms and they used their bodies as shields between the National Guard and the people of Rochester. And so in seeing things like that, like 
that's the perspective that I come from of being like, okay, there are good people out there who identify as Christian. I don't identify as Christian anymore. There was definitely grief that came and being rejected by my entire religious community whenever I came out and experiencing that and just having this be like a wait and see who else I knew from evangelicalism that also comes out of the closet, <laughs> you know, because you're not alone. There's lots of closeted queers in there. Exactly. And so slowly it's like, I've been seeing that more and more of, of people coming out and us reaching out to each other and, and everything. But in the time of being alone, of not having those connections to other people, there's like, there's anger that comes in grief. And part of that I had a, a stretch of time where I was very angrily atheistic. Yeah. <laughs> I think, well, Sarah, I also had an edgy atheist phase where I was very <laughs> angry. I think that is actually just like, literally, if we talk about like the steps of deconstruction, if we were to make, it's like the steps of grief. Like there is just the angry atheist phase. Like everyone has to go through it because you it's your anger phase. Well, it's like the pendulum swings. Like I was almost evangelistic in my atheistic views. Like I was very concerned if anyone yeah. was becoming more religious. It, it made me, I just went right into like trauma response. I was like, this is like, this is I think bad. that I still would do that like to a small amount. Well, it helps when you see, like we've had, we've interviewed a couple Christians on the podcast and it helps when you see Christians that are really doing positive things, progressive, very anti-oppression, like fighting for change. Very important. I think it, it gets really hard to balance it all because like we had Shane Claiborne, for instance, come on. And he's, mm -hmm. I don't think he's LGBT affirming, but he's never like, I can't find anything really publicly on it, but some people just keep their mouth shut. And a part of me mm -hmm. is like, I love that they're standing up for other causes, but then on the other hand, it really bothers me. Cause I'm like, this is an important cause and yeah. how like, there's so much nuance there to balance. Like I even struggle sometimes having relation. I have relationships with people that I know go to churches that no person that's queer could serve or lead because it's viewed as a sin. And even if that person in my life is queer affirming, I still find it really hard because I'm like, how do you go to these spaces and support these organizations that are homophobic and transphobic? Yeah. I think about while I was in evangelicalism, there wasn't really levels of closeness with socialization. It's like either, you know, that person's whole life story or not. And you know that person's <laughs> whole life story because you keep going to every single service together with them. And so I've gotten to this point of my life where I live in Republican County and so I, I face these different things and, and I'm like, there's levels of closeness and it's still something that I'm learning because of social conditioning. But if there's someone that I know that is a person that I enjoy that works in ministry, then then I enjoy that person, but I'm not going to have that person be one of the closest people in my life. I like that. It's it reminds me of an analogy that my one of my therapists said because I've gone into therapy on and off many times. But one therapist said to me, like, you get to decide. It's not all or nothing. It's not black and white. Oftentimes, people mm -hmm. want the black and white, but you get to decide, like if you're a house, you get to decide who you greet at the front door, but they don't even get to come in the entryway and you get to decide who you invite into the living room. And then you get to decide the very few people that would come into your mess upstairs or like see your dirty laundry 
when you were talking earlier, Kit, about the testimonies and the boundaries and the trauma bonding, I'm starting to realize a few things about my personality, which tends to happen on the podcast, that a few things in my personality, I think are born from Christianity, which is that I overshare, that I want everyone to overshare with me. I, I, as I get older, this has obviously gotten a lot better, but it used to be as like, I, I didn't understand why people were closed off because I'm like, let's all just talk about our problems. But now I'm like, as we're talking right now, I'm like, maybe that's not the best way to get to know people in terms of like your clients creating boundaries with their families and with friends. How do you, how do they start with boundaries? Because I think growing up Christian, you, a lot of the times you don't know anything about boundaries because they don't exist. And mm -hmm. what is like step one in learning how to create boundaries with others? I keep going back to physical sensations because I think that's something really good that people can learn. Body scan meditation is one of the first skills that I like to teach people. And for listeners here, you can literally YouTube it or Google it or Spotify where it can guide you through this. But basically what you're doing is you are examining each part of your body from the top of your head to your little toes and seeing if there's any tension in these spots. And whenever you start to notice some of the areas of tension, then you can start to ask yourself and, and get curious, like, well, why is it that area of tension? Like if this is not related to a medical cause, because talk to your doctor about it, but if this isn't related to a medical cause, is your heart feeling heavy because there's something that's affecting someone that you love. If your shoulders are feeling heavy, is it because you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders? Is your spine aching because you keep hunching over, bracing for something bad, something threatening to happen? So there's these different things where we can get curious about that. And doing a body scan meditation before going into a social situation then doing that after leaving the social situation. And then that can help you in knowing what was going on with that social situation and then letting those physiological responses be guiding you for setting boundaries with people. I love that. And I think that's really helpful going into the holidays because I know oftentimes even people that are very low contact with their families will oftentimes still go to like, a family dinner. And if you're someone that's deconstructed or an ex-Christian, you might still have family that's religious and you're going and navigating these spaces. And you also know on the other end that perhaps your family knows that this is an opportunity where they can talk about Jesus openly more so because it's Christmas. And that can be really hard for people to navigate knowing like, I want to still go in. I still want to have a relationship. Maybe. And maybe that's where people realize that they don't want to have a relationship or it's not healthy for them at that time. Going into these situations during the holidays, I encourage my clients to look at what are the common ground points that you have with family? What are the areas of interest that they have that you share those points of interest? Or if there's this looking at different values like love, joy, peace, well then be sharing about of joy, peace that you're finding in your life and connecting with that. So you can still engage in conversation with them, but from an alternative perspective that is also building common ground. It would be really hard. I know like, yes, to do the body scan before and after I think would be the, the best idea because doing it during, it's hard to <laughs> connect with yourself when there's so much going on around you. And for me, when those conversations yeah 
were to start, if I was in that situation, I would probably dissociate, which is also mm-hmm. not, I don't know if that's the best coping strategy. Or so. you feel like, like I know sometimes like as someone who identifies as gay, sometimes I'm going into situations, whether it's people I don't know super well, and like you're always assessing like how much do I share? Like, do I mention my partner? Do I just say my partner and avoid using pronouns? Yeah, obviously like this is super dependent on where you live. So right now I'm living in Vancouver, which is very progressive. And everybody here says partner for their husband or wife or their spouse or whatever gender. And I'd say the majority of people I know are straight, but it's funny that like I've lived in a few different cities and I've never lived anywhere where everybody says partner. And now I say partner and it's great. It's really nice to be able to just say that and nobody questions it. No one's like, wait a minute, does that mean like it just, yeah, my, the person that I spend my time with, that's it. That's what (laughs) my my person, my my person, my human. And so that, that, has been a difference and I just wish that everybody could live in a place that because I feel like my province I live Mm -hmm. in on the east coast I feel like people will use partner regardless of their gender or their orientation like they'll use partner if they're living with someone but they're not married but then oftentimes Mm -hmm. once people are married they'll be like he's my husband (laughs) yeah yeah you know it's interesting something about out here is we're very connected to French Canadian culture out here. And it's like in Montreal or Quebec city and stuff, then there's going to have more progressiveness there. Whenever you get into the rural areas of French Canada and being in rural upstate New York and stuff, part of this, it's like a, a survivalist type life where a lot of people are doing like homesteading and stuff like that. So because of that, I think that even in these more conservative areas of like French Canada and down here in in the Adirondacks region and stuff, it's like people are like, yeah, like you have to have a partnership in order to make this homesteading work, which is something that's like, Mm. to me, I find that very simplistically beautiful. And it just, yeah, it's just like, it's very cute. I like it. It is cute. (laughs) Yeah, that you need a partnership, except French is the worst because you can't like it's gendered so like if i'm saying like instead of saying like my partner i'd say ma conjointe so immediately i've had people when i was talking at work i've had people be like conjointe and i'm like yeah and they're like oh cool and then you Ugh. just continue on but they're because instead of saying mon conjoint it's ma conjointe oh, so it has so to be like, it has to be gendered like the... it's always everything's gendered it's masculine feminine. yeah that is true because <laughs> then i'm like when i ask like yeah. i've worked with clients that are non-binary and they use the pronoun yell but then I'm like well are your adjectives male or female because like <laughs> a gender language so it's, it gets complicated oh yeah absolutely like, are you I, I, exactly and I am hoping that things expand more with that like I have some non-binary friends like we call them Canadian friends so it's like so I have some non-binary Canadian friends and, and so that's something that we've talked about where hopefully like in the future as things are ever evolving it's like down here in the U.S. and stuff where we're just speaking English down here. Like at the same point too, it's like this language for queerness just continues to be ever evolving, which I think is something that's really exciting about the, the expansiveness and realizing that like our identity as individuals can be very expansive. And I think the power of language too, because even when I'm with my kids, sometimes I'll try and say, oh yeah, that's a nice person without assuming the gender of the person. Cause you don't want to make a big thing of it, but you want to just be normal. Yeah. And by trying I to like that. model that, 
There was one That's time awesome. where there there was a bathroom. It was like where it's like the half skirt and the half. Have you seen those? The half, <laughs> yeah, the half yeah, man yeah. and then the half woman. <laughs> and my daughter was like, what's that? And I was like, someone can be neither a man or a woman or there's non-binary. She was like, oh, okay, cool. Kids will adjust really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny like how people are like, you're sexualizing our children. It's like. No, there's so much more to sexuality than sex or so much much more to gender than like genitalia or who you're sleeping with. Well, the children are always just the big scapegoat. We have to, we have to protect the children. One thing that I thought would be interesting. So as you're someone Kit, who has navigated deconstruction spaces that are often like dominated by cis and hetero male perspectives, what are your experiences if you're comfortable talking about them and how do you think these spaces can be more inclusive and more affirming of trans and non-binary people because that's something we want to like we want to learn and be more affirming too and we recognize that like that's that's on our personal experience but it's important to first off i need to see this cat yeah okay thank you <laughs> here she is as sarah is asking the question, i think the I cat can... liked my question yeah the cat was meowing hard i was like i need to see this cat <laughs> she is so awesome so basically what happens is if i have not told her that she is beautiful rb oh. you are so beautiful once every hour <laughs> and make direct eye contact she will start meowing at me. That's actually so, the same. I, I'm, I'm very similar. So I, I, I like her. <laughs> so she will wake me up once every night because she just wants to make direct eye contact. Oh, with me. oh my gosh. That's so cute. She has an anxious, preoccupied attachment style. <laughs> but anyhow, so going back to this question about navigating spaces that are dominated by cisgender males. Whenever I first got into my field of graduating from from grad school, I I ended up working in the addictions field and the addictions field is, um, from my experience, is male dominated. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So a lot of people tend to see therapy as being a predominantly female profession, but whenever it comes to addiction treatment, working with people on parole and probation, it tends to be dominated by men because they're like, okay, so there are some clients that have dangerous behaviors. And so then they're like, well, then we need a man in here. And, and so with part of this too, I'm like, no, actually we don't. There are some, some great men out there who are wonderful social workers. I can think of some off the top of my head right now that I have such deep, profound respect for. And I think that a lot of times it's like masculinity is used interchangeably with misogyny whenever masculinity can be something really healthy. There's this new French artist that came out where he was singing the song masculinity and he was talking about like, what is healthy masculinity? And I I think that this is something really important to be talking about and exploring. And, And so like something that I like to do with men in my personal life and also professional life is ask them, what does healthy masculinity look like for you? Like who were your models for healthy masculinity? And me being a non-binary person, that means that I'm in this in-between of like and masculinity. And 
Mr. Rogers from PBS, like he was my hero. I loved him. And I think like that's a major reason of why I'm a therapist today and why I made the decisions that I have in life because of him. And I think that he was like a really great role model of masculinity. And so I think with part of this, it's even looking at men from a more nuanced point of view where a lot of times like men aren't really given that voice in spaces or are shut down by other men to talk about those nuances. And so after leaving evangelicalism, I've just gotten like very curious about masculinity and and healthy masculinity and have had like some really just beautiful conversations with men about those things. That's very interesting. I I don't think I've ever had the chance, like Sarah, have you had the chance to talk to men about healthy masculinity? That's an interesting one because we've done um, an episode on toxic masculinity. So maybe I should talk more about healthy masculinity. And I think masculinity is equated with misogyny. And it's so hard because there obviously a lot of violence and a lot of control. There's like a lot of issues in the world that have been perpetuated by men because men tend to be the ones that are in positions of power. And because they, they, on average and maybe are like tend to be stronger physically but I think thinking about it from a healthy perspective of how masculinity can be a good thing because I remember like when I think masculinity I think Mark Driscoll I think being raised (laughs) in that like real men don't cry and that's a really interesting question like I don't really think I've had the opportunity to talk to men about that on like what that looks like for them I don't know if a lot of men have thought about that what that looks like for them I don't think so and I think it's very like, it makes me sad and just thinking about this, like, like, it makes me tear up a little bit where so often in talking about purity culture, it's talked about from the side female at birth perspective, rather than the assigned male at birth perspective. Yeah. And so whenever being assigned male at birth, like, these people are said, you're animals, like, how dehumanizing is that? Like we talk about the dehumanizing of AFAB folks in purity culture, but like in equating human beings to being animals and then trying to like be outside of that. And then you're told that you're animals while also discouraging the belief in evolutionary science so (laughs) that's something that I've never thought about that's good oh that is so good (laughs) well it's and you're 100% right we have talked about we've talked about this before about how we had a very specific purity culture upbringing being assigned female birth like it is just very specific and because Mm -hmm. females we tend to be more encouraged to talk about our feelings overall in society, then we can talk about this very freely on the podcast. Whereas like, I feel like if I have a male friend who grew up in purity culture, like they don't even real, they're not as encouraged to really talk about or think about their emotions in general. So I'm like, wow, your upbringing must've been absolutely fucked, but they can't see it that way. And But I bet a lot of these things are quite deep rooted. I'm reflecting on like now, cause we had, we recently had a conversation with Brandon Flannery and he wrote the book Stumbling a sassy memoir about coming out of evangelical Christianity. And I think his perspective as a queer man, as a gay man, I feel like gay men probably in general tend to 
have maybe a healthier masculinity, but maybe that's a no. Maybe not. <laughs> no, that's a big old no, apparently. I guess it really just depends on the person too. Yeah, I guess I was making that broad statement because I was thinking that they're probably more comfortable with expressing their femininity. But here I am still stuck in this dichotomy of femininity being good and masculinity being bad. I work a lot with gay men. I love, you know, working with people in the LGBTQ community. And, and so this is just one of the orientations that I work with. And this is something that comes up quite often in my practice is how gay men have been objectified to be the gay best friend or to have, I hate to use it this way, but this is what it's like, of having a more evolved version of masculinity whenever like part of this too like there is toxicity there is misogyny that comes into gay culture and it places a lot of pressure on gay men and so with part of this like there is all of these norms that are in lgbtq culture that end up pigeonholing people into different roles of what they should be and what they shouldn't be. And a lot of this is based upon a person's body type. And so because of this, that's really not fair to people in the LGBTQ community to be typecasted, to be stereotyped within our own community because of what people's bodies look like of what they were born into. That really transcends so many topics, right? Like people being pigeonholed because of what they look like. Well, that's like, it's, I'm learning. I'm like, that's such an interesting perspective because I think sometimes living like in a very cis normative, heteronormative space, like I, I think that we're still so guilty of that people that are cis of just like having those broad categories and saying like, no, this is the way it is. And I think that's the beauty of queer people. That's the beauty of people that are outside that kind of binary and bisexual people as well. that are outside that binary of sexuality because it, mm. it transcends things in a way and it brings that different perspective. There is all these binaries to be found within the LGBTQ community. Let's take, for instance, case in point, tops and bottoms. Yes. That is about <laughs> as binary as what you can get, right? And that is cishet culture coming into LGBTQ. I feel like I want to ask some more questions before we go. Do you have a couple more minutes? Oh, yeah. I feel like there's just so, I just feel like there's so much that we could get into when it comes to deconstruction and gender identity that we barely even touched on. And anyone who's listening, I want to make sure that they at least get some information. So when you were going through the process of deconstruction, it's as someone I'll also share from my lens, like when I was deconstructing like the heteronormative, which we know is very present throughout Christianity, it's very gendered in terms of roles, at least the kind of some of the spaces I was in and everything was like, you know, you'll pray for your future husband. So there's like this whole future you imagine for <laughs> yourself that like you're grieving in a weird way. And then you're also like coming to terms with the world is like totally different. And then you played a role for so long that it's hard to know like even who you are. And there's so many things you look back on. You're like, oh my gosh, how did I not know? And then you feel stupid or you feel like all the signs were there and you just feel like you're so out of touch with yourself. You mentioned self-compassion earlier. Yeah. And that's a mm -hmm. really, I think it's a really tough thing for someone who was in a high control group to give themselves self-compassion. I still really struggle with it. 
what is something that for your clients that you start with self-compassion? Is it because everyone feels stupid when they're deconstructing these things? Like, oh, how did I not see? How did I not know? Yeah, something that I like to do is cognitive restructuring with my clients. So whenever you are thinking to yourself, I encourage people to speak out loud whenever they're alone, then you're able to catch your negative thoughts a lot quicker. Once you hear that you have a negative thought then say, stop, reframe, say it again and say it in a way with an alternative twist that provides self-compassion. And so that helps in retraining the brain to go down different pathways that are not our default. And because growing up in high control groups, self-compassion is not the default. So it's starting to retrain so that then it rewires the brain. So that's a skill that I think can be really helpful. Another skill that I think is really helpful too is to picture your younger self and then picture yourself in your mind of what you look like today, giving that younger self a hug. And being the person that the younger self needed. I've done some of that and like saying the things that the younger self would need to hear. Oh, I've cried about my younger self so many times, just feeling so much compassion. I have more compassion for my younger self than I do for my present self, but that might just be like my own fucked up brain. But, but then you can of- picture you in 10 years yes, having, having, having a bunch of compassion. That- there you go, Sarah. You're right. I feel like there's not always enough talk about like the painful process. Like people will share memes online. They'll be like, oh, I can't believe Christians believe that. But like, it's not always like that personal process of looking at like, how did this impact me? Because Jessica and I are still learning throughout this process, like even today, different ways that the church impacted us and implicitly how those still show up in our day-to-day lives. And I'm sure that Kit, for you, that it's the same sort of unpacking process. It's never, you're never, it's never done. You're never done. <laughs> I honestly didn't even know before we started the podcast that I had issues from when I was religious. I think the podcast has been good. And I think maybe some people listening, I'm glad that they're listening to some of our guests because I feel like just these little tidbits of information can help everybody just to process what they've been through. A little plug that I want to put in is the empathy paradigm. Are you familiar with them? No. Oh, are they on uh, Instagram? They are. And They also have a website and a religious trauma workbook, and I'm a big fan of them. I went through a training that they did, and it was absolutely fantastic, LGBTQ affirming, looking at things from a very nuanced type lens. I'm just looking. They have a religious trauma survival guide. It's a digital printable workbook. What a great resource. It's funny because it's just, it says it's empathy-based training and coaching. And I feel like empathy is like the enemy to a lot of these high control religious groups. Stamp it out, stamp out that empathy. And they think empathy makes you weak. I, I think everyone on this call right now could say, I think empathy makes you much stronger. Yes. And we can put that in the show notes. Are there any other good deconstruction resources that you're aware of for people that are going through deconstruction and wanting... Like you said, they're queer affirming and they're inclusive and we we're all about that. So anything yeah. that we can share with people. I also really like the reclamation collective. So with the empathy paradigm and the reclamation collective, those are really the only two resources that I feel like I can confidently say are LGBTQ affirming. I think two is good. Like one is good. Anything is good sometimes for people that don't know how to navigate this space, including myself. And sometimes even knowing that there 
are people that are going through the same thing as healing. And I think we, we get some messages sometimes that are just like, and people that only just look at our memes, they don't even know we're a podcast. And they're just like, your memes have helped more than you know. And you're like, okay. <laughs> like I never thought that would be my life. <laughs> I love that so much. Like, uh, how did this become our lives? But I'm I know. Here. Cause I was like, we, a few months ago, I was like, we are not a meme page. And then we are Definitely also a hundred percent in a podcast. I, I was thinking about the song, you can't get to heaven in a mini skirt because God doesn't like girls that flirt. And I hadn't thought about that song in such a long time. And whenever I remembered that song today, I was like, fuck you guys. <laughs> like, I was like, I am just realizing now like, I was like, what a catchy little tune with the most horrible lyrics. Some of the um, lyrics aren't as bad because it's like you switch the phrase or what. It's like one of those. Yeah, like roller songs. skates or rolling past heaven's gates. Yeah, you can switch up the words. But the miniskirt one, yeah, it, it tends to awaken that deep recess in your mind where you're holding these random songs and you're like, oh, wait, we used to sing that. Wow. Oh, yeah. Like, you're yeah. welcome. Father Abraham just pops into my head every so often, like, and the actions. And you remember, like, <laughs> and you would go on forever. There'd be so many different actions that you would do for that song. Sorry, exactly. sorry kids, I have that stuck in their head. <laughs> you know, Father Abraham is like the extent of my athletic abilities. Like, do you know what it is, Jessica? <laughs> no, I have no idea. I don't know what it is, but you know what, guys? I'm sure it's really bad. I know. It's bad. <laughs> Sarah brought me into the church when we were teenagers. So there's quite a few things that I did miss out on. Yeah, no, oh, I wasn't raised particularly religious. This is all Sarah's fault. I brought her to Baptist youth group and then we worked at Baptist Bible camp. And then we both went to like a charismatic, non charismatic church. Yeah. Yeah. And Sarah, you were the one that invited me on the podcast. And yes. now I'm questioning do you have a whole MLM that's going <laughs> on now and you just rebranded? I know yes, you're right. I... You, that did <laughs> and you know what? Even if I did have an MLM, the souls of my friends would not be at stake. So I don't know that it would be that intense, even though all of the people that do MLMs that we went to high school with, it's more intense than I ever was with evangelism. Oh my God. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, we should probably wrap up. This has been awesome, Kit. And if there are any other resources you think of that you want us to add to the show notes, please send them on. Are there any things that you would like to shamelessly plug, like things you've been up to professionally? I know you've put out some courses. We'd love to link all of that in the show notes because I love the perspective you bring. And I think that anyone that's in New York looking for therapy, I think Kit would be amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I launched this website called theliberateporch.com. And on this website, I also am offering a course called Lifting the Winter Blues. And it's a six lesson long course. Each lesson takes around 25 minutes to do. And I just present different information about mental health with seasonal depression and having different coping skills for these different facets. So I talk about holiday grief in it, finding different coping skills like loneliness that comes during the cupping season so many different things where I just haven't seen another course like it for seasonal depression and know that this is something that can really hit folks who live up north. And so I was like, I want to make this as a kind of love letter to all of my up north people. And I got an Instagram, which is also the liberated porch and a podcast, which is the liberated porch. And so 
really, I just talk about a variety of topics that are about finding liberation through social justice and mental health. And if you have any stories and you'd like to come back, please just let us know. That was very fun. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'd love to come back. Thank you. Yes, yeah. Thank you so fun. much coming on. Yes, and that is you. Kit with the Liberated Porch. All right. Awesome. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Cause